This is Macro Horizons, episode 101, Making the Turn, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the next couple of weeks. And with the end of 2020 finally in sight, our odds of making it to 2021 look a lot better than they have in the last 10 months. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market got a fair amount of information to help guide trading. However, we didn't see a great deal of price action as a result. Congress managed to deliver a new fiscal stimulus bill that involves $600 direct payments and an additional $300 a week in unemployment benefits, as well as a variety of other programs. Congress has signed off on the resolution, but it has yet to be officially signed into law by the president. As that process continues, we expect that the U.S. rates market will respond accordingly, with the caveat that rates seem to be relatively indifferent toward a great deal of the recent macro developments. This dynamic really started in early December with a disappointing November non-farm payrolls print. It continued through to the indifference shown at the FOMC meeting when the Fed decided not to extend the weighted average maturity of QE purchases. One could make the argument that we're still seeing that indifference play out around the stimulus bill. It will be notable to see the market's reaction if and when the president signs off. Beyond the headlines out of Washington, the market is entering a period that has historically been characterized by low commitment, low liquidity, and occasionally relatively sharp price action. We'll be reluctant to interpret too much in terms of investor sentiment based on what happens during the final week of December. Looking into the first week of January, however, when cooler heads prevail, or so goes conventional logic, we would expect the emphasis to once again return to the jobless numbers, claims first, and then the official BLS report on Friday. This will be information for December and really serve to further solidify expectations for growth and consumption during the fourth quarter. The most recent increase in COVID-19 cases and the subsequent restrictions and lockdowns in the domestic economy will add an additional layer of uncertainty in judging the pace of the recovery. Nonetheless, with the positive progress on the vaccine side, it isn't surprising to see equity prices continue to drive toward record highs. 
The Fed has managed to make it through December without having to deliver more in terms of monetary policy stimulus, and that sets the FOMC up well for the first quarter. They have the ability to extend WAM of QE purchases, as well as a variety of other tools in the event that the outlook dims to the point that more action is warranted. As it presently stands, the Fed is content with a wait-and-see stance until more data becomes available, both in terms of the real economy as well as the progress of the pandemic. Well, Ian, against all odds, 2021 is actually in sight. And so, in keeping with tradition, probably makes sense to go through our outlook for the year ahead. Yeah, there is a fair amount of optimism implied in the year ahead, but assuming we make it there, I think it's important to have in context what we are seeing in terms of the shape of the curve and outright yield levels. So big picture, we have forecast for the end of 2021, 10-year yields at 1.25% and 30-year yields at 2%. Now, I'll be the first one to make the observation that that's not a particularly exciting forecast for treasury rates in the middle of a pandemic with all the risks associated with the damage being done to the employment market as well as a potential upside for inflation. However, if we look historically over the course of time, what we tend to see is unless the market is in the midst of a massive repricing comparable to what we saw at the beginning of 2020, 10-year yields have a tendency to hold a range of between 75 and 90 basis points. So that easily puts 125 to 130 on the radar, but also means that there's a reasonable probability that the 50 to 60 basis point range in tens is retested on a sharp flight to quality in the event that the recovery doesn't play out as swiftly as the market is anticipating at this point. In the front end of the curve, which is increasingly defined as twos, threes, and I'll argue fives as well, we're looking for an even tighter range and lower rates. We have two-year yields ending next year at 25 basis points and five years ending next year at 35 basis points. Now, this is nothing more than a reflection of the Fed's commitment to keep the zero interest rate policy in place for the foreseeable future and the reality that the Fed is going to continue to be an active buyer in treasuries at at least $80 billion a month for the foreseeable future. In this context, the foreseeable future is at least through the year ahead. Whether QE is tapered in 2022 is an open debate, but for the time being, we're assuming that bond buying is in place as is or with a WAM extension through the end of 2021. One could argue that that does limit the extent to which the curve can re-steepen in the event that the reflationary narrative overpowers some of the employment and consumption concerns. At the end of the day, we expect yields to trade in a range with a slight upward sloping character over the course of the next four quarters. What becomes more interesting is what could go wrong. And that brings us to everybody's favorite segment, the top 10 risks for the year ahead. Coming in at number one, the path toward inoculation is longer than anticipated. I think that's an easy one to envision. 
right? We've spent a lot of time conjecturing about how willing the population will be to embrace the vaccine. We're still early enough in the vaccination process, however, that there's plenty of initial demand. We won't get a real sense for the relevance of the holdouts until we're probably halfway through the year and we see what the actual number of people who have sought the vaccine ends up being versus the potential of 330 million here in the U.S. And the latest estimate around the beginning of a general vaccination program seems to be centered toward the end of February, early March. And that, of course, is assuming that the phase one vaccinations continue to roll on broadly as scheduled. There is also the latest development on the new strain of the virus from the UK. That is a new medical risk in the path through the pandemic. Everything that we've seen thus far seems to indicate that the current vaccine will be just as effective against this new variant. But still, in keeping with the broader call, as goes COVID, so goes 2021, the journey toward herd immunity and mass inoculation is clearly at the top of the list in terms of risks facing our outlook. And risk number two for the year ahead is that a double-dip recession is deeper as the Fed hits the limits of its support for the real economy. Now, the notion that we're a consumer-based economy and the inability of individuals to either consume for employment or income reasons, or the inability to consume simply because they are on lockdown will remain the operative debate in 2021 as well. The Fed has delivered a fair amount and will continue to do so. However, there are limits insofar as monetary policy support translating through to consumer confidence and therefore personal consumption, which will be key at this stage in the recovery. And looking at growth as a whole, how Q4 sustained this latest pickup in COVID cases will remain high on the list of consequential unknowns early in the year ahead. Even after Q3's 33.4% quarter-over-quarter jump, in outright dollar terms, the U.S. economy is still 2.7% off the peaks we saw to end 2019. So while no one is disputing that the bounce from the plunge in Q2 has been faster than expected, the fact that we're now seeing re-lockdowns and restrictions on in-person commerce re-implemented is going to be a headwind not only in Q4, but Q1, and maybe even the early part of Q2 as well. This coming at such a pivotal time for monetary policy will certainly lengthen the time it takes to get back to those 2021 levels of output we saw. And in the event the pandemic materially worsens, another quarter of negative growth is certainly not off the table. And following with that, we have number three, inflation remains confined to the influences of the pandemic. One of the more fascinating aspects of the uptick in inflation that we saw during the pandemic was how concentrated it was on a few core areas. Used auto prices are a classic example of a pandemic driven shift in consumption that subsequently led to higher prices. As people moved out of urban centers into first and second ring suburbs, the demand for private conveyance increased. And this was also consistent with the shift away from public transportation. So an increase in used auto prices at the beginning of the pandemic, as well as upward pressure on shelter and housing costs, follows somewhat intuitively. What will be interesting to see is how sustainable 
is the upward pressure on inflation. Now, it's important to keep in mind that because of the drop in inflation that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, there will be some base effects that come into play, which will put upward pressure on inflation during the first half of the year. So it's reasonably safe to say that the beginning of 2021 will be characterized by a focus on the risk for inflation, which should put upward pressure on rates early. However, if the composition isn't broad-based enough, we'll start to quickly run up against concerns of the sustainability of the upward pressure on consumer prices. And there's also the labor market to consider in this vein. If there is another surge in layoffs related to more COVID restrictions, it's going to be difficult to see upward pressure on wages and thus the flow through to the increase in consumption-driven price pressures that the Fed is ultimately after. At this stage, the distribution of risks around the trajectory of hiring seems to be pointed in the slower rather than faster direction. And until such a time we see a meaningful acceleration in the process of bringing back sidelined workers, the fact that wage gains are going to continue to muddle along will serve to limit the upside in consumer prices, even if asset prices can continue to grind higher, as they have throughout most of the back half of 2020. And coming in at number four for the top 10 risks for the year ahead, we have that political gridlock constrains fiscal support from Washington. We're even at this moment seeing a fair amount of that play out with Congress able to deliver a bill, but the president, at least initially, being reluctant to sign that into law. This will be an ongoing theme, perhaps less so with the transition to a Biden administration, but the nuances and political calculus behind pushing forward a fresh round of stimulus above and beyond the $900 billion that is currently being debated in Washington will keep this an open issue, if nothing else. And there's also the unknown of the runoff election in Georgia, and in turn, which party ultimately controls the Senate. The latest estimates there point to roughly a 75% chance that the GOP retains control of the Senate, which adds to this gridlock narrative and really makes it difficult to envision a large comprehensive package makes it through Washington very quickly, even after the new Congress is sworn in and Biden takes office. The fact that gridlock in Washington is now back in the narrative at a time when the economic impact of COVID is once again rearing its head is troubling for the rebound narrative and should, in market terms, limit the degree to which long-end rates will be able to back up in the next several months. And at number five, temporary job losses become permanent. This is one of those risks that almost by definition will come to fruition in one way, shape, or form. Powell has made the point several times that the damage being done to the labor market will take years, not months or quarters, to resolve. And while there are aspects of the frontline service sector that will be reengaged and reemployed once the real economy has transitioned to a version of a new normal, the fact of the matter is that there has been so much dislocation that has occurred in the employment market and so much retooling required for many workers to find gainful employment once again, that this will be an issue that lingers for quite some time. We've been focused on the labor market participation rates, particularly in that key 25 to 34-year-old cohort, which tends to drive consumption in the U.S. Now, there's obvious parallels between the last financial crisis and the current situation, particularly as it relates to 
that subset of workers in the U.S. But there is the nuance that the nature of the pandemic has created issues with child care and created issues with in-person learning, which has weighed on labor market participation in that key group as well. So as we attempt to gauge how many of these job losses will become permanent, it will be very useful to see the transition out of lockdown and how that impacts that key consuming group in the U.S. And even before the pandemic, this subset of the population garnered a lot of market attention, given the fact that that millennial generation has been slower to form households, purchase real estate, and really take up that mantle of consumption and drive the next leg of growth. I would also add that from a behavioral lens, it's not unreasonable to assume that spending patterns in this group most adversely affected by the pandemic will change in 2021 and probably even beyond. Employment will probably be viewed as far more tenuous than it was before COVID. So higher savings, less consumption, and even different consumption, maybe more focused on goods like you touched on earlier, Ian, will also serve to limit the benefit that those jobs that are returning, even as temporary ones, grow more permanent. And this brings us to risk number six. Negative rates overseas constrain any optimism expressed in U.S. rates. This is a dynamic that has been in place in global rates for quite some time. If we look at Europe, if we look at Japan, there's negative rates pretty much all the way out the yield curve. And in contemplating the trade-off between buying U.S. treasuries that yield 90 basis points versus a boon that yields negative 60 basis points, the biggest question becomes that of the FX rate. And the recent weakness in the dollar and the perception that that will continue will function as a key underpinning. However, in comparing U.S. assets to assets around the world, it's difficult not to assume that there will be a limiting factor from negative rates overseas on how far 10 and 30-year yields are able to back up. And in an extension of what has been a primary theme over the past several years, the amount of negative yielding debt globally has surpassed $17 trillion. Even aside from negative monetary policy rates in various places around the world, the fact that the size of the negative yielding bond market continues to grow while treasury yields across the curve remain in positive territory is naturally going to generate demand from those investors that are able to add U.S. dollar exposure in a world where it's difficult to find positive yielding debt in their own domestic markets. So extrapolating this onto our broader call for treasuries in 2021, this certainly doesn't preclude a general drift higher in U.S. rates as the recovery continues, but it does limit the prospects for any surge in rates that puts 200, 250 basis point 10-year yields back on the table, simply because a sell-off of that magnitude will be met with demand not only from domestic investors, but buyers abroad as well. And on the topic of supply, we have risk number seven, massive treasury issuance rekindles term premium. Given the fiscal response to COVID-19 in 2020, it was no surprise to see record large treasury auctions across the curve as the Treasury Department endeavored to fund an ever-growing deficit. And really on the supply front, one of the biggest takeaways from this past year has been just how effectively these offerings have been able to be auctioned. And the fact that we saw many auctions clear at record low yields with record high sizes really supports this notion that as long as the dollar retains its status as the global reserve currency, this structural bid for U.S. safe haven assets is going to persist almost regardless of auction sizes. And let us not forget that the reality is that the Fed is monetizing the deficit. 
Now, whether the mechanism is a highly structured and regulated QE or not, the reality is that the Treasury Department will continue to issue and the Fed will continue to buy to support the economic recovery. This brings us to risk number eight, that lofty domestic equity valuations are challenged, thereby tightening financial conditions. The Fed has exerted a remarkable amount of control in financial markets throughout the pandemic. Started in the very front end of the curve and then via QE, it's been active all the way out to the 30-year sector. What we have seen is we have seen a transition of the Fed's reaction function to financial conditions, whereas in the past, the Fed might have simply responded to tighter financial Financial conditions. At this moment, the Fed is actively managing to forward financial conditions, risks, and expectations. So we've talked a fair amount about the institutionalization of the Powell put. That is certainly here to stay. So the risk then becomes that a backup in rates or a stumble in the recovery or issues with a vaccine rollout lead to a correction lower in equities that increases equity volatility, tightens financial conditions, and the Fed is then prompted to respond. There will be a point, financial stability risks and the concern about bubbles in certain asset classes makes its way into the market discourse. For the time being, however, the Fed has managed to sidestep that discussion. And at number nine, we have funding market volatility returns. We've intentionally put this risk towards the bottom of our list. If for no other reason, then we've entered a meaningfully different reserves paradigm than what we saw back in 2019, when the level of reserves declined to a degree that triggered that surge in repo rates, which ultimately led the Fed to implement its overnight and term repo operations, as well as those reserve management purchases in order to try and get those reserves back to an acceptable level. And more recently, the market hasn't needed the Fed's liquidity in repo markets. We've seen many operations with no bids at all submitted, but it's safe to say Powell is going to be very reluctant to remove this safety net. And while some upward pressure on funding costs around month, quarter, year-end dates will certainly persist, the reality that the Fed has committed to be the liquidity provider of last resort should limit any surge in funding costs throughout 2021. And that brings us to our final risk on our top 10 list, and that is the omnipresent geopolitical uncertainty. It's a very good catch-all phrase, even if the risks are very relevant, whether it's the ongoing trade tension between the U.S. and China or a resurgence of the issues in the Middle East, we do remain concerned that in the year ahead, we will see an increase in these tensions that subsequently dims the global economic outlook even further and thereby limits any optimism or any upside in rates. If anything, this simply reinforces the broader range trading thesis for treasuries in the year ahead. And let us not forget, we also have a new U.S. foreign policy platform that will be coming online in January. Far be it from us to offer any meaningful insight on what policies a Biden administration will pursue. But again, this is another uncertainty for how the geopolitical landscape will evolve as the world slowly makes its way through the pandemic. And presumably some of the norms that were established under the Trump administration are altered under a Biden one. So having gone through the top 10 risks, I think it will be useful to go through them again in reverse order. You weren't paying attention the first time, were you? Huh? In the weeks ahead, 
the Treasury market will have two primary issues to deal with. First will be year-end and all the typical volatility associated with that period. Our expectations for the funding side is that the market is in a reasonable position and the Fed stands willing to inject liquidity if needed. The end of the municipal bond and corporate bond facilities does complicate the process, although at the end of the day, we expect the year-end turn to come and go with relatively little fanfare. In terms of economic data for the final week of the year, we do get Chicago PMI, Case-Shiller, and the advanced trade data, none of which will materially challenge the prevailing macro narrative. We also see three key auctions with the two-year at $58 billion, the five-year at $59 billion, and the seven-year at $59 billion as well. Those occur on Monday and Tuesday to create a buffer for settlement into the end of the year. Given the performance of nominal auctions despite the increases in size, we expect reasonably strong sponsorship for these year-end issues. It's the first week of January in which the macro inputs start to become more intriguing. Not only do we have non-farm payrolls on Friday, January 8th, with a consensus close to just 100,000 new jobs. Now, while we haven't seen a negative print since early in the pandemic, the realities of increasing jobless claims as well as the winter wave of COVID-19 really puts the risk of a negative NFP print on the table. We will have ADP as well as many of the other employment proxies to help further refine those expectations. But as it stands at this point, there's a very reasonable risk that the beginning of the year starts off with a less optimistic tone in terms of the labor market. The market will also see the FOMC minutes, which will help clarify the debate around the extension of the weighted average maturity of QE purchases. Any insight into how close that decision was will be useful as the market attempts to gauge the prospects for the Fed to deliver more in the first quarter of 2021. We'll also hear from an array of Fed speakers, which will presumably add greater depth to the market's understanding of how the Fed currently sees the beginning of 2021 in terms of the need for additional accommodation and what the triggers might be to push that forward. Beyond that, the primary risks remain in gauging the degree of optimism that investors are willing to price into the U.S. rates market, part of that being a function of the reflationary trade, with the constraint of what appears to be a bit of a struggle for the recovery as the year gets underway. Our stance is unchanged insofar as the curve remains little more than a directional trade, a bare steepening in the event that inflation concerns outweigh any downside risks for the employment market and therefore consumption, and a bull flattener as a function of any flight to quality or rethinking of the prospects at this stage in the recovery. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we put the finishing touches on our 5,593 parchment pages of New Year's resolutions, we find ourselves surprisingly grateful for the pocket veto. So many off-label applications. Who knew? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. 
so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.